Hello and welcome to episode 125 of Africa Past and Present, the podcast about African history, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Peter Alegi, and it's a great pleasure to welcome today Professor Didier Gondola, Chair of the History Department and Professor of African History and Africana Studies at Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis. His publications include numerous articles and chapters on popular culture, gender, and post-colonial issues in Central Africa and the African diaspora in France. His most recent book is Tropical Cowboys, Westerns, Violence, and Masculinity in Kinshasa, published by Indiana University Press in 2016. His earlier books include Africanisme, La Crise d'une Illusion, published by L'Armatan in 2007, The History of Congo, published by Greenwood Press in 2002, and a co-edited volume with Charles Shimanga and Peter Bloom entitled Frenchness and the African Diaspora, published by Indiana University Press in 2009. Professor Gondola has been a Fulbright Scholar at the University of Kinshasa, a fellow at the Nantes Institute for Advanced Studies, and a senior scholar at the Collegium of Lyon, where he developed a biography on André Matsua Grenard, a political activist and charismatic visionary who campaigned for emancipation in France and the French Congo in the 30s. He is an editorial board member of African Studies Review, the official journal of the United States African Studies Association. Welcome. Thank you very much. Did you always want to be an historian? Um, I'm afraid yes. Always wanted to be a historian. Since probably the, the age of maybe 14 or 15, I remember I was, uh, I was entering high school and I had a, a teacher who had graded me terribly on an essay. I thought I would get a great grade, but he gave me a bad grade. And I went to talk to him about the grade and the paper, the essay. He said, Gondola, you will never be a good historian. So I took it as a challenge, and I decided to become a historian just because of that comment that he had made. The other thing that really kind of pushed me to become a historian is just because of my identity. You know, I come from both Congos, Congo Brazzaville and Congo Kinshasa. In Congo, Kinshasa, my father was from the north. In Congo, Brazzaville, my mother was from the south. So you see, my identity is kind of shaped like a square, and I really wanted to re reconcile that. And that actually pushed me to become a historian because I know that my cousins were always teasing me. Yeah, you're not from this side of the river. You're from the other side. And on the other side, no, you're not from Kinshasa. You... Now, imagine when there was a soccer game between Congo Brazzaville and Congo Kinshasa. I had to stay quiet. You're not going to reveal your loyalties here? No. <laughs> a wise man. Now, Tropical Cowboys... Your latest book is fascinating. It connects social history, gender and generational studies, and urban studies. As a fellow social historian who has worked on popular culture and sports, it struck me how your Yankees, your Bills of Kinshasa, compare with the urban cowboys elsewhere in Africa, places like Johannesburg, where the cowboys were kind of precursors to the Tsotsis, on the Zambian Copper Belt, in Dar es Salaam, in eastern Nigeria and elsewhere. So all these male groups 
bring out the very tight connections between popular culture and politics in African history. Uh, music and soccer come to mind. I also think of uh, Zongola Antaraja's short history, short biography of Lumumba, where he mentions that Lumumba was a beer salesman in Kinshasa in the late 50s, and he was so good at it that in the bars and nightclubs of Kinshasa, there was an expression when somebody wanted a beer, they'd raise their hand and call for a Lumumba. So the rise of the National Congolese movement to the MNC maybe is, 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 is a good example of this. Um, but what made Kinshasa's tropical cowboys distinctive in this larger African context? Yeah, it, you know, in my research, you are absolutely correct. I mean, the, uh, the global, there's a global appeal of the Western, the American Western. The, I mean, the Hollywood rendition of the American West really appealed to young people, not just in Africa, but also elsewhere in uh, Latin America, uh, in Eastern Europe, maybe not Asia, I haven't really uh, come across, you know, uh, the expansion or the, um, the appeal of the American uh, Western films in Asia. In Kinshasa, it was really singular. It was really unique in the sense that it lasted for such a long time, at least two decades, the 1950s and the 1960s. And in Kinshasa, too, the distinctiveness of the movement is that it was not just about masculinity, it was also about fashion, it was also about language, it was also about music. So it was very much holistic, the appeal of the, the cowboy uh, in Kinshasa. Young people would dress up like cowboys, would try to imitate the cowboy's gait and swagger and so on, walk like a cowboy, talk like a cowboy and so on. And it's also, and I think what's also unique, but we may actually find that in other places too, is that it was a sort of, a, the performativity was a performativity of resistance. They were not just trying to perform, but they were also trying to use that culture and that movement to resist a, a colonial situation that really, I think, oppressed and tried to abolish the masculinity and the manhood of the African man in, in Congo, Kinshasa. So it was also about resistance, not just about displaying uh, your fashion, uh, uh, fashion savviness. It was really beyond that. And, and that's the uniqueness of that movement in Kinshasa. And you talked uh, earlier today at the African Studies Center about, for example, the indulgent use of in, in with uh, marijuana um, and of course also the relationships with women young women in particular can you tell us a little bit about the role of these practices in this subculture of the cowboys because at one point you said that the local slang indubil this kind of local language that was developed at the time half of the vocabulary was about drugs consumption, and women. Drug and women, consumption and women. And women, absolutely. I think that the whole movement really revolved around that. So we have to understand those young people. Those young people lived in a, you know, the Belgian Congo was basically under a system of apartheid, very similar to what the, uh, the Afrikaners did in, uh, in South Africa. So 
with that came the idea that the African man, the Congolese man, had to be separated from uh, the colonial society. The Congolese man was not a man per se, but was a child. Uh, you spoke about Lumumba a few minutes ago. You know that when Lumumba came from Kisangani, from Stanleyville, which is now Kisangani, to uh, Kinshasa, on the streets he bumped on the white woman who said, hey, macaque, which means monkey. So it's not only that men in Congolese, in the colonial society in the Belgian Congo were emasculated, but they were also animalized. So mm-hmm. now you can understand the rebellion of those young people. They really rebelled against this situation. They wanted to kind of forge their own standard of masculinity. Mm-hmm. That's basically mm-hmm. wanted to do. And, and those standards were very rebellious, very, very rebellious. So as I said, it revolved basically around two activities. How do you become a man? You become a man by being tough and by basically doing something that only the adults could do, mm. especially in the force public, in the army, which is to smoke marijuana. Okay? Smoking marijuana was a sort of a, a way to escape, to escape oppression, to escape the society that, as I said, it, it was a broken colonial ladder that really did not allow them to actually go up. Um, Women, their relationship women was very interesting because, uh, because they were organized around gangs. And then um, to assert yourself as a tough gang in Kinshasa, you had to go out, encroach in another gang's territory and abduct girls and bring them back to your place to basically you know, subject them to sexual violence. So that's why those two activities, smoking marijuana, and basically gender violence, you know, against uh, girls were so key in the vocabulary, the argo that those young people coined and created and forged in Kinshasa in the 1950s and 60s. And if I could just give an example, I'll return to uh, the issue of sexuality and violence, but I want to give the listeners just a taste of the kind of nicknames that these cowboys adopted in the 50s and 60s. Cassidy, William Booth, who you spoke with, yes. and you quote extensively in the book, Buffalo Bill, of course, Gary Cooper. We've got uh, also women such as Rita Hayworth, Miss Crocker. Uh, there's a Fantomas, and on and on. There's a Khrushchev, right? So what do these nicknames tell us? Can we read into them about consciousness, for instance, and, and identity? the values of these young men at the time? You know, they really tell us about some of the popular cultures that impacted them at different periods of time. For example, in the 1950s, it was mostly cowboy names. And then in my talk, I mentioned that there was no Indian names because Indians, they were yes. perceived as being the losers. I had assumed you know? it would be the opposite. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The zeros, you know. Indians are massacred in movies. They, they don't even have names. They don't even talk. I mean, they, they have feathers. They have, their faces are painted. And those young 
uh, Congolese young people, they didn't want to resemble those Indians that they were watching in those movies. They wanted so to be like no the subaltern solidarity. Absolutely <laughs> not. Absolutely not. They 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 had little sympathy really for the Indians. So later on, names such as Khrushchev, Doug Hammarskjöld, mm. who was the head of the UN. Those names were later on when the Cold War actually yes. intruded in Congolese society in in the 19 early 1960s so they for example gang groups were named ambassade des juifs for example jewish embassy there was one that was called un uh, and so on mm. because it really shows that those young people living in the townships they were not oblivious to the political uh, environment around them uh, so they knew about it and they adapted them they appropriated uh, uh, political events that were unfolding around them. So that's why you see the names actually changing over time. Very important to look at language as a source. Another fascinating source in this book is uh, made up of the photographs. Yes. And some of them you took as you did your field work and you uh, met and interviewed the, by then, elderly men who had been Cowboys in their younger days, Bills and Yankees. And by the way, listeners may be surprised to know that there were 1,500 U.S. troops in what is today Kinshasa during the Second World War, and that is most likely where that Yankees uh, name came from. But these, these photographs are great, and you complement them with those marvelous photos by Jean Depara, uh, many of them from La Revue Noire. Uh, and can you tell us more about these photographs that Depara took, and also about Depara himself, who I think was born in Angola, if I'm not mistaken, and how these photographs complemented your fieldwork and the other documentary sources you used to uncover this history of cowboys in the tropics. Jean Depara is really a fascinating figure, uh, somebody that I wish I had met, you know, but he passed away before even I started thinking about this, uh, this study. Jean de Barra, as you said, was born in Angola. He was a Muzombo. Uh, so he came to Kinshasa because there's a lot of Bazombo mm. that came to Kinshasa. I mean, just keep in mind that those colonial borders are very artificial. And the Bazombo, actually, you, have, you find some in Congo, some others uh, in Angola. So he came to settle in Kinshasa. I think initially he was uh, uh, repairing shoes, you know. And then at some point, somebody gave him a camera and he decided to become a uh, photographer. So he started to take black and white photos. You know, he would go to the nightclubs. He would basically follow. He was basically kind of trying to capture the uh, effervescence of the night life in Kinshasa in the 1950s. And there is nobody better than him that captured that. And his lens, I think, was very subversive very transgressive How so? because he captures scenes that the colonial authorities actually didn't want people to know about the fact that they were in Kinshasa a lot of uh, femme libre you know free women that actually were lording over men during the night life uh, time you know because they were basically kind of selling their bodies if you will you know and uh, the bills were also a very subversive figure uh, the musicians were also very subversive in Kinshasa in the 1950s. There were some uh, mixed couples, you know, 
uh, whites, Belgian mostly, and then Africans, all of those actors of the uh, nightlife scene in Kinshasa, they were really outside of the um, kind of the society, the ideal society that the Belgians wanted to create. So that's why from the get-go, his work was extremely subversive. And um, Depara is not as well known as Malik Sidibe, for example, although I think that he a needs to be... Yeah, great photographer for Mali. Yeah, great photographer for Mali. But as I said, Revue Noir is really trying to change that. They are actually working on a bio of Depara with many of the pictures and a really good narrative that contextualizes the, the pictures. I'm actually part of that, um, that, that project. That's great. And listeners uh, may want to go back and check out the episode we did on the Archive of Malian Photography uh, a while back, where the work of C.D. Bay and other fantastic uh, Malian photographers was discussed with uh, uh, great experts and, and actually family members of theirs. Maybe there will be a Depara digital archive available oh, right in the now. future. I mean, really, as, 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 a, as a professor of African history, when I, when I teach about Congo, and particularly Kinshasa, and also, you know, what used to be called Elizabethville, Lubumbashi, and so on. And, and I want to project a sense of the style, the flavor, the, the moment in time of the late 50s, early 60s. Those f photographs are absolutely fantastic. Mm. They're both documentary, but they're also artistic absolutely. in a very yeah. special way, black yeah. and white photographs. Yeah. Now, moving away from, from sources, uh, we mentioned violence and place. And violence has a notorious and quite infamous place in modern Congolese history and in the academic literature on the country. Depending on whose estimates you want to rely on, anywhere between 6 and 10 million Congolese men, women, and children died as a result of King Leopold II of Belgium's reign of terror. Uh, the assassination of Patrice Lumumba, of course, in 1961 set off a whole chain of events in the Congo crisis and beyond. Uh, the violence of Mobutu's kleptocracy and more recently, what some have called Africa's first world war in the Eastern Congo since 1997 has claimed about three million lives. Your work shows a different kind of violence, you know, sort of part social banditry uh, and part quite crude thuggishness. Um, I like how you don't romanticize it. Mm. You know, agency uh, sometimes is romanticized yeah. by scholars. Um, and we have sexual violence. We have kidnapping and rape. and. Can you tell us more about the violent subculture uh, of these men and how it fits into this larger history of violence, individual and collective, in the Congo? Yeah, you know, I think we can even go before, go back before Leopold II. Uh, I think uh, Robert Harms wrote a book about rivers of wealth, rivers of sorrow, to yes, show how the, the Congolese, yeah, the Congolese basin was a place of violence when men were being abducted to be taken to the coast and uh, to be taken through the middle passage to the plantations of the New World. The, the, the violence in Congo started way before Leopold II, but I would say that it did climax under his regime. And what, what we are seeing in Congo, and people are lamenting that, is this repetition, is the repetition of violence. When we believe that we are at the end of the violent period, now we can rebuild, we have another wave of violence. Uh, you know? and, then, and, then, and then Congo becomes the only place in Africa where you have an international war. You know? That's really interesting. 
In my work, I really show that the Bills were, first of all, victims of violence. They were victims of colonial violence. I, I mentioned it could be verbal violence. It could be mm -hmm. physical violence. It could be the violence that you see your parents, your father is subjected to violence. He's mistreated at work and so on. He's infantilized, you know, because there was the curfew in Leopoldville or Kinshasa until the end of the colonial time. Now, just picture the force publique with uh, loudspeakers telling people seven at 7 p.m., tolala, 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 which means let's go to sleep, let's go to sleep, to adults, to fathers, and to mothers. This was a type of, a, of, of, this was a type of violence. So those young people were victims of that kind of violence. But in my work, I am showing that they were not just at the receiving end of violence. They were also perpetrating violence, especially gender violence. The, the, what they called billing, which is kind of gang fighting, was very performative. It was very performative. They would use their body to fight. And when you are the, you vanquished, you admire the person who basically tranced you. You know, you, you, you find this kind of admiration. It's the end of the fight, and then you shake your hand, you shake hands, and then you admire, you say, wow, you did well. Like oh a my traditional God. wrestling exactly. match. Exactly. Oh, that was really great what you did. It's not like you become enemies. No, you're not, you don't become enemies. The serious violence that I'm talking about in my work is really gender violence because part of this kind of masculinity, how to become man, was to go out to encroach in another gang's territory, abduct their girls, bring them back to your place, and basically rape them. And this, in their language, was called amour forcé, which means in French, forced love. You know, how can you force somebody to love you? But it was really kind of a euphemism for sure. rape, because that's basically what, what they were doing. It's, it wasn't just inflicting violence to women for the sake of inflicting violence to women or to show your masculinity, but it was also a way to humiliate another gang, to basically show them that they're not men because they are so unable to protect their girls. In their see, territory. In their territory. So the victim here was, of course, the girl is a victim. She's being raped. But it's also the other gang. We're showing you that we're stronger because we have this ability to go out and to help ourselves to your women, to your girls, and bring them back and rape them. And in, in some cases, it was also sexual violence against boys. Oh, yeah, absolutely, sexual violence against boys as well. As, as a matter of fact, there was a report written by a Belgian administrator in 1957, was released in 1958, and it's called the uh, Brissot Report. And the Brissot Report is actually the report that alerted the authorities to, you know, homosexual activities, you know, that some of the, the little boys that were part of the, the movement were actually being raped by the Grand Bille, you know, the adults, part of the movement. And I know for sure that some of the Grand Bills that were apprehended and sent to juvenile det detention camps were sent there because of that uh, sexual violence, sexual violence target targeting girls and sexual violence targeting boys as well.
are these cowboys still around today in Kinshasa or are there modern day versions? Their spirit is still alive. I think if you think of Lingala as a language, there's a lot of uh, indubil in Lingala. That's the really, slang of yeah, the cowboy. Yeah, that's the slang of the, the cowboy. You have that in Lingala. If you think of Congolese rumba, you have a lot of bilism, you know, or kibil in, uh, in Congolese rumba, starting from the time of Franco, because Franco himself was a bill. Franco is Luambo Macchiadi. He's kind of the, the founding father of Congolese rumba. He was a bill. He was a bill himself. So what they did is that they incorporated a lot of the bills, vocabulary and swagger and way of, of saying things, expressive culture. They incorporated that into Congolese rumba. But if you will, after the bill, we had like a genealogy, if you will, of interstitial youth movement or groups in Kinshasa. The latest is called Kuluna, and it's right now in full swing in Kinshasa. What's interesting is that they have really gone, I think, away from the spirit of the Bills because the Bills, when they were fighting, they were fighting against themselves. You know, they were, it was a gang fighting. Mm -hmm. They were never targeting the civilian population. And plus, the violence was really kind of using the body, you know, as a weapon. But right now with the Kuluna, we have weaponized violence. They're using machetes. Uh, they're using even guns. And they are targeting passersby. They're targeting people. They go into their compound and they they hold them at gunpoint and they basically loot. So it has become a a, a more radical, extreme violence that actually I think reflects also the way Congolese society and Quinoa society has evolved. It has become a much more violent society very recently. And the recent election, your take on it is going to affect these dynamics on the ground or is it far too early we to tell? Are, we are hoping, but right now I think there's kind of a, a gridlock because of the fact that there was an arrangement that we yes. are told between the president and his um, predecessor, uh, which makes it really difficult for him to be able to govern, to be able to rule, because of the fact that the two chambers are going to be controlled, are actually controlled by the FCC, which is uh, former President Kabila's party or coalition. Um, the governors of the different provinces, most of them also come from the PPRD, which is Kabila's party, and the FCC is the coalition. So we have the impression that that musical chair hasn't actually worked. The same person hold, holds sway, has still a lot of power. So it remains to be seen if President Chisekedi going to really be able to assert himself and to be able to govern uh, with free reign, which actually is not happening. That's why uh, it's been actually two months. We're going into the third month. There is still no government in Congo, no prime minister and no government. It's a very challenging Absolutely. situation. Yeah. Now, perhaps as a way to start bringing our conversation to a close, I wonder if you could talk about your new project, which is a really interesting one, a biography of uh, André Matsua Grenard, who was a 
Congolese political activist who fought in the Tirailleurs Senegalais, sort of the African colonial forces, but also with French forces in World War II, and was a kind of sort of quasi-religious uh, leader, sometimes even compared, I understand, to Simon Kimbangu, founder of the famous Kimbangu's church. So can you tell us a little bit about this project and also maybe why writing Matswa's life story is important for you at this time? Now, imagine I go to the archives in Aix-en-Provence. That's where the colonial archives are. And I am looking at different archives and I found a particular series, uh, I think it's 5D series, A-E-F, A-E-F, you know, uh, Afrique Equatoriale Française, 5D. And to my huge surprise, I uncovered boxes and boxes and boxes of worth of archival materials about Matswa. And those boxes cover the history of Matswa and his movement from 1926, 1926 all the way to 1942 when he died. 20,000 pages. Sure. Amazing. And nobody, kn nobody knows about it. Nobody knows about the fact that the French had actually monitored this guy and monitored his movement. And in the process, they wrote 20,000 pages. <laughs> you know, I was like, this is amazing. And they were actually decaying. You know, so I did ask the director of the archives because I got some funding from Indiana University if they could be microfilmed. And so they were microfilmed and I was able to use them. The biography is completed. This guy in the 1920s was actually campaigning for the extension of French citizenship to equatorial Africa, not just to Western Africa and the four uh, communes of Senegal, Senegal yeah. but he wanted that citizenship to be enjoyed also by the people in equatorial Africa. What I really find so fascinating is that we take it for granted, you know, French citizenship, because in the 1960s, you know, the Africans were mm. refusing French. They wanted to become independent. They said no to the gold, starting with Sekouture in Guinea, and then later on, all of the different colonies became independent, and they had their own citizenship. But in the 1930s, it was really interesting because it was a battleground. For the French, mm. it was like such a subversive idea to want to be French, you live in your village down in the heart of equatorial Africa. You know, you go out, you know, without clothes and you're not civilized. You're still a savage and you are claiming to want to become a French citizen. So Matua was really perceived almost like today a terrorist would be perceived. He's a threat to this colonial system because the colonial system has two different groups of people, the citoyen and the sujet, the citizens and the subjects. There's no way that a subject, a native, can become citizen. So it was a very subversive idea. So because of that, he was actually arrested. He was arrested while he was at the front fighting for France against Nazi Germany. He was wounded, brought back to a hospital where he was arrested, transferred to Bordeaux from Bordeaux to Congo, where he was jailed in a prison in Miami in a tiny cell, probably tortured. 
and he died in 1942. I think he was so badly tortured that the French didn't want to give his body mm. to his community for proper burial. So there's a myth that actually started of Matsua never died. He's going to come back. He became a messiah. So there was a whole cult, a whole religion that was created with followers, you know, praying to Matsua, believing that one day Matsua is going to come and free us and liberate us. So it's a really fascinating story. I have completed a biography, and uh, it's going to be out soon. Magnificent. This is Lumumba before Lumumba. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. Well, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, Professor Didier Gondola, and um, we hope to see you again soon here in East Lansing. Thank you for speaking to Africa Past and Present. Thank you. The pleasure was mine. Africa Past and Present is a co-production of Matrix, the Center for Digital Humanities and Social Sciences, and the Department of History at Michigan State University. Technical assistance is provided by the Matrix Digital Media Lab. For more information and to subscribe to the podcast, visit our website at afropod.aodl.org. The podcast is also available on iTunes. You can also send us email at africa.podcast.com at matrix.msu.edu. Thanks for listening.